Thanks. Well, my name is Ron Cool, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, again, a joy to welcome all of you here this morning. We're going to continue to look this morning at a, a 24-hour period, the 24 hours leading up to and including the, the death and the burial of Jesus Christ, 24 hours that uh, many people believe are the, the pivotal 24 hours in human history. We're calling the series 24, The Journey to the Cross, and, and what we're looking at is, is the time period from sunset on Thursday to, to sunset on Friday, okay, that 24 hours, uh, sometime in the spring of the year, sometime around AD 30, and again, we're near Jerusalem. I want to start with, uh, you know, again, Thursday evening is where the series starts, but we're going to cheat again a little bit this morning just to remind you, um, there we go, uh, to Thursday morning, uh, Jesus was not in Jerusalem, but he was in Bethany, okay? Jesus was in, in the city of Bethany about two miles outside of Jerusalem. Earlier in the day, he sent Peter and John, and then Jesus and the disciples went, and they made their way over to, uh, over to Jerusalem, and they came down the Kidron Valley, going over the Mount of Olives there. Uh, if we look at our model here, the, the map this way, again, they came down here, went through the lower city, up into the upper city. We said that lower city was kind of where uh, more of the laborers worked, kind of the, the poor people, lower income folks. And then upper city, that's where there was an upper room where they would have the, the, <clears throat> the money to share a space like that with Jesus. So it was there that Jesus and his disciples spent about five hours about five hours celebrating the Passover, and Jesus said, this is my body. He gave us the Lord's Supper. And, and then as they came around to uh, about midnight, it, it was then that they made their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, perhaps walking between the old upper city and lower city through the temple. They probably did that, and then over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week, Daniel talked about Jesus in prayer at the Garden of Gethsemane. And that took place from around, again, midnight to around 3 a.m., all right, around 3 a.m. At, at 3 a.m., Jesus was arrested. Jesus was arrested. The, the soldiers came, and they, and they took him, and they brought him down the Kidron Valley, all right? So he's now probably tied. The other, uh, the disciples have all dispersed. They've gone away. Jesus is tied, maybe hands behind his back, maybe in front, but he's being led down the Kidron Valley. And then again, they're going to take him to the palace of Caiaphas. All right, the palace of Caiaphas is going to be up there we go. It's going to be up this way. Um, and uh, there we go, right over to this spot there. Um, I've, I was going to mention, I forgot about that, but I was going to mention that area there, Jesus would have walked past, um, would have been where he did a lot of the teaching. That's the temple right above there. And so, I, again, if you think about it, Jesus coming down the Kidron Valley, um, probably smelling the blood from the lambs, 25,000 lambs sacrificed where Jesus taught there um, by the temple and, and then coming to the bottom. And then that journey up there, it's about a half a mile in length. But one of the things that's interesting to know is, is, is that it's about an, a rise in elevation of about 400 feet. Okay, now 400 feet doesn't seem long this way, but think about it this way. As Jesus is walking this half a mile, he's also basically climbing the stairs for a 40-story building. Right, if you figure kind of 10, store, 10 feet for floor, uh, it's going up 40 flights of stairs. In fact, um, if they go back, this is from the time of Jesus. They dug down to it. You can see it's fairly steep, right? I mean, so Jesus, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. He's, he's walking. Uh, he's been uh, up all the time, and, and he's arrested. He's, it's not comfortable walking. Uh, this is a hard walk to make. This is a long way for Jesus to go, and he would have been tired again by the end of it. They bring him to the palace of Caiaphas. And uh, again, this is perhaps what it looked like, something like this up in the upper city there. Um, this is the area inside where Jesus would have been with the Sanhedrin. 
Okay, it's the Sanhedrin who, who are putting Jesus on trial. It's the, those are the ones, the Jewish leaders, who are, going to, who are going to condemn Jesus to death. But I want you to notice something else here. Notice these two spots here. In the outer courtyard, those are fire pits. And, and, and some of you, uh, we're going to read it in a little bit, but some of you may remember, Peter and John, like all the disciples, they separated out, right? They, they all went away. But then Peter and John started to follow from a distance. And Peter goes into the courtyard of the palace of Caiaphas here, the high priest, and he goes and he warms himself by a fire. And it's there that he is confronted by people saying, you were with him, weren't you? You were with him. And he's going to deny that he even knows Jesus. So what's going on here is, again, it's 3 o'clock in the morning and the Sanhedrin is meeting. And in order to understand what they do, we have to understand a little bit about the Sanhedrin and just kind of give you a, a feel for what this is. The Sanhedrin was the ruling body in Israel at the time of Jesus, okay? Th- these are the people who are now in charge. Um, Israel always had a king, but when they came back from exile about... 560 years earlier than this. When they came back, they didn't have a king anymore. And what they had were priests. They had some other leaders. And that was the Sanhedrin, okay? The Sanhedrin was how they were led, not with a king, but with this group. And in some ways, if you want to think about them, what they are is is they're like the Senate and the Supreme Court. Okay, it's the same body, but they make the laws and they enforce the laws. That's the Sanhedrin. They are the the leaders of Israel. They are the political leaders. They are the religious leaders of Israel. And they make those laws and and they enact those laws and they they put them in place. There are, and and it's interesting again, there's a Sanhedrin here in Jerusalem for the entire country, but there's also Sanhedrins, little ones, in each city. Okay, so all of these had the same kind of ruling structure. The main Sanhedrin, the the Supreme Court and the Senate, was made up of 70 members plus the high priest. Okay, so there are 70 people, uh, 71 people at this meeting with Jesus. If you wonder why 70, it's interesting. You go back to Numbers 11. The Lord said to Moses, bring me 70 of Israel's elders who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. They will share the burden of the people with you so that you will not have to carry it alone. All right, so that's why they have 70 of them. There are 70 members plus the high priest. The high priest at this time is a guy by the name of Caiaphas. Okay, a guy by the name of Caiaphas. And um, he is, he's one of the chief priests, but he's been elected the high priest. And, and it's fascinating to sort of think about this family to, because, because Caiaphas, we're told, is the son-in-law of Annas. And, and let me just kind of show you a list of the high priests in Israel during the time of Jesus, all right, from 6 to 44 AD. Here are their names, okay? Annas, Eliezer, Caiaphas, you'll notice 18 years, right? Caiaphas is the one who's in charge when Jesus is on trial. Jonathan, Theophilus, Simon, Matthias, or Matthias, and Jonathan. Now let me add one more piece of information that will tell you that politics and churches have not changed in 2,000 years. Check this out. There's Annas, and then there's Eliezer is the son of Annas, the son-in-law of Annas, the son of Annas, the son of Annas. Simon somehow sneaks in, right? And then we have another son of Honest. This is, this is the ruling. These are the Kennedys. These are the Bushes or the Schulers, or if I can get John to take over here, it would be the Cools, right? I mean, it's, it's, that, 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 this is a powerful family politically and religiously. And, and I think that we need to kind of recognize, uh, of all the characters, Caiaphas is probably, in my mind, the most calculating Right? In fact, John, the Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus was being brought to Caiaphas, he actually stopped at the home of Annas first. 
And, 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 and John has honest questioning Jesus. And so, you know, if you think again about the, the father of the family, that's honest. He's there, and he is pulling the strings through his kids. He is calculating. He is the one who's telling things how to go. And so honest, he's, he's not the nicest guy. I just, I, most of these people I think many of us can relate to, but Annas is one, and, and Caiaphas, these are, the, these are the political, you know, guys who are, who are in the back room making all the deals, the daily family, whatever, whatever connections you want to make, all right? So it's 70 members plus the high priest. Now, who are the 70 members, okay? Who are the 70 members? And again, it's just fascinating to me to see how things are just still so similar. Three groups, Three groups make up the Sanhedrin, and, and they don't always get along. As I talk about it, you'll recognize that they don't always get along. The first group is the chief priests, okay? The high priest is chosen from them, um, but the, the chief, chief priests, and, and they were what we might call religious professionals, okay? They were, well, Dale Bruner calls them senior pastors, which I don't appreciate very much, but, but, but they were the, these were the people who were sophisticated. These were the people who went to seminary. These were the people who were educated, and they knew, and they, 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 their biggest challenge probably was their arrogance, because they were educated. And, and it's like, you know, I mean, let's just face it. When you talk to a pastor, sometimes we're tempted to sort of say, well, in the Greek it says, because you can't argue with me, because you have to think I might be right. And, 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 and in the Hebrew, it says... And you don't understand theology, and you don't understand church history. And, and so there's that, they're chief priests. They, they were the professionals. They were the sophisticated ones, okay? The, the second group was the scribes and the Pharisees. And, and these are the Bible teachers, all right? These are the ones, they, they didn't really trust the chief priests because they weren't the professional religious ones. They were the ones who were passionate about God's word, about reading it, studying it, chewing on it, owning it, and then living it out. These are... And, and I, again, I, I love Bible Study Fellowship, but in some ways, you know, Bible Study Fellowship, they are so passionate about it. And, 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 and I always felt a little bad, but it fits just right here. Because my understanding is that if you're in Bible Study Fellowship, they say, don't go ask your pastor the answer to these questions. And it's sort of like, don't go ask the chief priests because they're going to give you this answer that's not just, we just want to study the word of God. And, and so we're just going to, and, and so these are people who are just, I mean, they're great people, Okay. This is, this is a group of really great, passionate people. And, and, and they, now again, their danger is legalism. <laughs> but they don't really necessarily trust the chief priests, all right? And so, you know, we, we have the scribes and the Pharisees. And then the third group, oh, we should have done a survey, see if anybody could guess this. But it's, they're called the elders in the Bible. They're the business guys. Yes, they're committed to following God, but they're the pragmatic ones. They're the ones who get jobs done. They're the ones who, you know, I look at our council and I say, yep, we got them all. Dale Brunner says that, for those of you who like denominational stuff, he says what we have here are Episcopalians. They tend to be the professionals. They live in East Grand Rapids, right? And, and then the, the scribes and the Pharisees, Baptists, right? Bible teachers. And then the Reformed people and the Presbyterians, the elders, the business guys. You know, I mean, it's just, these, we tend to fall into these camps. And this is the, these are the three groups there. And as you, you think about that, say kind of, where do I fit? I, I, probably someplace here. And, and recognize that, that they had a heavy burden to lead the people. It's not easy. Any of you who have ever been an elder or deacon, a shepherd leader, a service leader, a small group leader, any of you who have ever done any of those jobs here, any of you who have ever been on a school board, you probably take that responsibility really, really seriously. 
Because you have a responsibility to lead others. You have a responsibility to care for others. And so these three groups, uh, again, I mean, if you want to do it, I mean, the the chief priests are going to be the most liberal, the scribes and Pharisees most conservative, the businessmen are going to say, the elders are going to say, it's the economy, stupid, right? I mean, it's just so similar to to how things work in, in our day and age. Now, they usually met in the temple during the day. So for them to meet at 3 o'clock in the morning at the Palace of Caiaphas, they could occasionally meet at the Palace of Caiaphas, but for them to meet at 3 o'clock in the morning for this was an emergency session. And, and, and what they had to do is they had to deal with a problem. It's interesting. Jesus had conflicts with each of those three groups. He had conflicts with the chief priests. He had conflicts with the Pharisees and the scribes, right? He broke the laws. So on. he had conflict with the elders and so on. Jesus had conflict with each of these groups. And, and, and for different reasons, they are all at a place right now where they say, we've got to solve it. We've got to get this thing done. I, I, I think for each of these groups in their own way, if you look at the ministry of Jesus, it's kind of three years long. And in the first year, when Jesus comes on the scene, the other religious leaders, the other business leaders are all kind of saying, hey, this guy's got some gifts. Let's see if he'll join our group. Let's see if he'll become one of us. Let's see if he'll be a part of who we are. And then they realize he's not going to do that. So the second year, it's kind of like, how do we live with this guy? And by the third year of Jesus' ministry, it's like, we've got to get rid of him. And so they have this emergency session. They've already decided that unfortunately he needs to die. And so now they're getting together because they needed to solve the Jesus problem. All right, that's the setting. Jesus has been brought through the Kidron Valley, up those stairs into the palace of the high priest. Peter is outside. This is what Mark says happened, all right? Mark 14, starting at verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests, the senior pastors, the elders, the business leaders, and the teachers of the law, Bible teachers, came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and there he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. Okay, can you see it? That, that Peter's out there with his other folks, and he's warming himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. Now, it's not sort of like, well, he's a problem today and we have to do this. Again, remember, this has been going on for three years. They have tried to kind of invite Jesus to join them and follow the rules. They've tried to invite Jesus to get inside the system, and Jesus has stayed out of it. And and so they have finally gotten to this place where they say, and they had decided this several weeks earlier, we've got to put him to death. And, And now what they're doing is they're doing hard work. But it's the work of leadership It's the work that needs to be done. They are responsible. We'll come back to that. But they didn't find any. They're looking for evidence that they could put him to death, but they couldn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. I I, I picture this scene, and Caiaphas is there. Caiaphas is, he knows how things work, okay? He knows how to get a job done. Caiaphas is there. He knows what has to happen. It's not pleasant, even he doesn't want to put this guy to death. It's not pleasant, but sometimes for the sake of the greater good, for the sake of the greater good, you've got to do tough things. And so, <coughs> excuse me, he's made this decision, and they've got Jesus here, and so far everything is going exactly right. And then the witnesses come, and they can't get it right. You just need two to agree. And they just, they don't agree. And, and finally, I, I think in some ways, you know, they had this set up. And on the one hand, it's a kangaroo court. The decision has already been made. But on the other hand, they have to follow procedure. So some, then some stood up and, and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another not made with hands. 
Yet even their testimony did not agree. I mean, Caiaphas is going, can we not get this right? I, I mean, come on, can we not? We, I, I, even, when they're, even when they're lying, fascinating to me that Mark wants to show us that. I don't think he's trying to say, oh, you see, they're just so evil, they can't even lie well. I think what he's, well, I'll show you in a minute what he's, I think he's saying. <coughs> Excuse me again. Then the high priest stood up before them and, and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer what is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. I think that we're supposed to understand right here that if Jesus keeps his mouth shut, he's off the hook. They cannot convict him on their own. If Jesus does not answer, they've brought in testimony and they can't get it straight. I mean, the, 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 the DNA evidence is mixed up. The glove doesn't fit. Whatever it is, there are all these things and they cannot get it straight. And so finally Caiaphas just turns to Jesus and he says, are you guilty or not? Are you the Messiah? And, and, and I think if Jesus had just remained silent, again the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And, and I think Mark wants us to know that, that Jesus is not a victim in this. But Jesus is in control. Without him opening his mouth, it's done. And so he helps them. Think about it. Jesus gives them himself on a silver platter. He says, I am. I am. You guys couldn't get it straight. <laughs> so I'll just tell you flat out. I am the Messiah. I am the one. And some of them might have heard an echo of an answer that God gave to Moses. When Moses says, what is your name? And God said, I am who I am. And now Jesus says, I am. I am. And just in case they didn't think this was good enough evidence, he goes on. <coughs> Excuse me. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is quoting two Old Testament passages here. The Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. There were a couple of passages that were really important for the people of God here about the Messiah about the coming one from God. The first is Daniel 7. It says this. Daniel says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's the Messiah, right? That's, that's the Messiah who's coming. Like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. He is the king of kings. And so Jesus says, You will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. The other passage is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus says, look, I am, and let me just give it to you clearly. I am claiming to be the King of Kings. I am the Messiah. I am giving you all the evidence you need. Then the high priest tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him as worthy of death. The good news is he was worthy of death that would save you and I. They all condemned him as worthy of death. And then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. 39 lashes. You couldn't give 40 lashes. That could kill a man. So 39 lashes. They've actually found what they think is the palace of Caiaphas. 
And in the basement, there are cells. And there's actually a pit down which you would drop somebody to get down into this area. But I want you to notice this. You see those two holes? What those were for was that's how they would, would, they would either have somebody put their arms in there or else they would tie them up there and when they would whip them. And so it could well be that that was the place. This was, in the, in the, again, the basement of the high priest's place. It's a religious leader, but he's a political leader. And so they had dungeon cells and all that stuff. And they found a lot of crosses etched into some of these places. And they figured that early Christians were beaten here as well. The question I want to think about with you at the time we have less, and this is really the question I want you to walk home with, is, is this. How does this happen? How does this happen? How, these are not just purely evil people. How do God's people, these, these responsible people, these leaders, these people who are a lot like you and a lot like me, how do they say he is worthy of death? How does this group of, of God's religious leaders, how do they condemn Jesus to die? What is it that drives them to that? Why is it that these good people do such a bad thing? Well, why is it? And, and as we go through this, what I want you to be asking yourself is also this. What could make me do this? Because the fact is, the Sanhedrin's not just 2,000 and a whole years and a whole world away. The fact is, the Sanhedrin meets the third Monday of every month here at Hillside. And we can be driven to do really bad things. And we can make all sorts of mistakes. So what was it? What was it that led these people, these men in this case, to condemn Jesus and what might lead us to do the same. Adam Hamilton suggests that there's one main motive. There are plenty of other ones. But, and, and I want to follow him in this. But he says, you know what it is? He says, I think it's fear. Fear is such a powerful force. And, and that more than anything else, what these guys were is they were afraid. They were not out trying to destroy everything. They were afraid of what was going to be lost. They were afraid of, of all of the stuff that was going to happen. They were afraid and they needed to step in the situation the fact is, fear can make us do powerful things. Fear, if there's one thing I think that, that tempts me to compromise my commitment to Christ, it's fear. It's fear that you might not like what I say. It's fear that you might reject me. It's fear that you might fire me. It's fear that I might lose my job. Fear that I might lose my house. There is so much that we do because of fear. And I think when I look at these Sanhedrin guys, I think so much of what we see is fear. Some of the fear is legitimate. That's part of the problem. Some of the fear is legitimate. Some of it is not. Let me kind of go through these fears. And as I do so, ask yourself, where do you feel fear? When you're trying to follow Jesus Christ, where do you feel fear that pressures you to compromise that commitment? Part of what they felt was a fear for others. A fear for others. First of all, I'd say it's, it's a fear for those who are following Jesus, right? They had responsibility. As a pastor, I have some responsibility I have some responsibility that if somebody is writing books and they claim to be Christian and they're not, do you not want me to warn you? Don't I have a responsibility to say, hey, that's not true teaching. And that's what these guys saw in Jesus. He's breaking the law. He's changing things. And they just, they, they were leaders. As parents, if your kids start to follow a crazy path, don't you have some responsibility to say, you can't go down that way. I'm afraid of what's happening if you, if you follow that person. I'm afraid of where you're going to go. And, and that's what I mean, time and time again. It wasn't just that they were jealous of Jesus. They were afraid for those people who were going down the wrong path. Maybe you have a friend who, who makes some choices. And, and you say, you know what, I'm afraid you're going to gain the whole world and lose your soul. Don't you have some responsibility as a friend 
Don't, don't you have some? But, but I mean, I'm afraid for what's going to happen to that person. And that's part of what drove them was fear, a pretty good fear, a fear that you've probably felt. If you've ever worried about somebody else and what they're saying or doing or believing, it wasn't just those following Jesus. It was fear for the whole nation. It was fear for the whole nation because Jesus could ruin everything. Let me go back to the decision that John tells us about when they decided that Jesus had to die. Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend from the dead, and Mary and Martha are the siblings, the sisters. But Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. This is what happens, John eleven forty five to 47. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, they believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests, the senior pastors, and the Bible teachers called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You know, this guy is going to ruin it for all of us. It's kind of tenuous where we are. It's kind of difficult where we are. I'm afraid for those who aren't following him, we're all going to get just blasted with the same Roman spear. We're all just going to get blasted with all of this stuff. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, again, the high priest, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. He says, you know nothing at all. And I think what he's saying is, you don't get it, guys. I'm the, pragma- I'm the one who understands how this works. And then he makes this amazing statement. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Look, he says, it's better for us. I don't know if he's really all that guilty or not, but sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do. And if you say, I would never do that, then ask yourself, is it better for one terrorist to die from waterboarding than a nuclear bomb to explode in New York City? Oh, ouch, Right? Is it better for one person to be fired from your company than for the whole company to go down? You make this kind of a fear all the time. If we don't do something, I know maybe it's not, but you feel that pressure. You feel that pressure because what if everything falls apart? Then we all lose our jobs. Then we all, and, and, and I'm all against torture, but I mean, if come on, if there is, I'm sorry if this guy's got to die. But it's better for one man to die than for there to be a nuclear bomb in New York City. We're not very far apart, are we? I mean, we can't let Hillside fail because it just, it just would damage so many people. We can't let the United States fall. We can't. It's the beacon of freedom and democracy, and we can't let it fall. So whatever it takes, we've got to keep it alive. And people, I mean... Just go through the last 200 years, and it is such a temptation. And there have been so many times that people have justified and rationalized wrong things for the sake of the greater good. And we are exactly doing what Caiaphas did. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Fear for others, for those who are following Jesus, for the whole nation. In some ways, those... It's at least a little more understandable, but it wasn't just fear for others. It was also fear for themselves, and it's fear for ourselves. For them, for us, a lot of times it's the fear of the loss of power and influence. You know, let's go back and let's... Well, let me just tell you about their time a little bit. Think about it. Okay, I'm a, I'm a rabbi, I'm a teacher, or I'm a chief priest, or whatever. But, but we have services here. 
Now let's imagine that, that Tim Keller comes into town once a month and two-thirds of you go hear Tim Keller. I don't like Tim Keller anymore. He's fine in New York City. That's what Jesus did. These guys would have their groups. They'd have their Bible studies. And when Jesus was in town, two-thirds of the people go hear Jesus. And I'd like to say, well, I'm angry at what he's teaching because he's teaching false stuff. But maybe really what I'm angry about is he's taking away my power. He's taking away my influence. He's taking away my ability to make a difference. I get respect. And this Jesus is messing around with that. I mean, it's good to have influence. And if all of a sudden you're going to be sidelined because of that, that's just not right. That's just not right. And so part of what drove these guys was the fear of their loss of power and influence. They saw that going away. And some of that is, is, is really rotten. But I'm not so different. I, I don't like to not have power. I was talking to somebody who had a child get arrested. And, and he said, the worst thing I feel like is I don't have... I didn't have the ability to control the situation. I get so afraid of being in situations where I I don't like to lose my control, my power. And Jesus says, die and follow me. And how often do I say, no, I will follow you, but under my control while maintaining my power. Loss of power and influence, loss of money and income. That they did pretty well financially, just like me. And Jesus turned over all those tables. That was, Passover week was kind of like December for us. You got to get most of your income in that one time. And then Jesus comes and turns the tables. And there went the condo and the boat and all that nice stuff. And they were afraid. And if you say, well, that's terrible, just ask yourself, what would you really be willing to compromise if your income was going to be cut in half tomorrow? You tell me I'm only going to have half the income. I'm going to find a way. If there's an out, I'm going to try to rationalize it as much as I can. Interesting one here, loss of place in the group. In, In the Sanhedrin, there were some people who were followers of Jesus. Nicodemus was in this group. He was in this room. Joseph of Arimathea, who's going to bury Jesus, was in this room. And you know what they said? Nothing. Nothing. Because they didn't want to stand out. They didn't want to run the risk. They didn't want to lose their place in the group. And how many times am I not in situations where something wrong is happening, but I say, you know what, it's just not my responsibility well, I, it doesn't do any good to say anything because it's not going to change anything. And how often am I out of fear, silent? I'm afraid I'm going to lose my place. I'm afraid I'm going to not be part of the group anymore. And I find myself just right there in the Sanhedrin. And maybe Nicodemus and jo- Joseph of Arimathea are who I relate to most. And if we go outside, there's Peter who says, I don't know him because he's worried about losing his life maybe or at least getting a beating. It's an interesting thing, as I was thinking about that this week. In the palace of Caiaphas, in the palace of Caiaphas between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. on that Friday morning, think about this. The leaders of God's Old Testament people, the Sanhedrin, 
and the first leader of God's New Testament, Peter, New Testament people, the church, Peter, are at the same time failing God and failing the God they want to serve. What a picture, right? The Sanhedrin, God's Old Testament people, Peter, the rock on which Jesus is going to... I don't know him. He's got to die. It's better for one man. They failed, and so do we, time and time again. Because I get afraid. I get afraid you won't like me. I get afraid that you might cut my salary. I get afraid you might fire me. I get afraid of all sorts of things. And I fail. And as we close this question, what do we do when we fail God? And the most important thing for us to do is to remember the rest of the story. We've got to remember the rest of the story. Remember we talked about Passover. The Lord's Supper is a story of grace and love and forgiveness. Because what happens next is that Jesus forgives us. Not exactly next. We've got some things to go on. Luke tells us that the first words that Jesus spoke from the cross are these. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And I think them as the Sanhedrin, and them as Herod, and them as Pilate, and them as Peter and John, and all of the disciples. Father, forgive them. You see, it's precisely because we're so controlled by fear that Jesus died. It's precisely because too often we compromise that Jesus gave his life. He forgives us, and then he loves us perfectly. 1 John 4 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love dries out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. And so as we close, I just want to just invite you to confess and receive God's forgiveness and grace. Then to say, God, just remind me of your perfect love so that I don't have to be living in fear. So much of the time when we argue about, think about this, just arguing about theological issues, there are some challenges in the churches today, and we tend to just be so driven by fear. What if this happens? What if that happens? Perfect love drives out fear. And when we learn to walk in that perfect love, we'll walk a little straighter and a little more courageously. Let's pray together. Father, sometimes in fear we yell at others. In fear we strike out at a spouse with our words or even with our fists. With fear, maybe rooted in love, but with fear we punish our children for our sake more than for theirs. With fear, we yell at another group of Christians because they're going to lose the gospel or they're going to lose the truth. Forgive us for being controlled by fear and remind us of your perfect love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you please stand to receive God's parting word of benediction? Again, following our service, there are going to be some folks in the prayer room if you'd like to talk with somebody or pray with somebody. People of God, as you go from this place, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ goes with each and every one of us, and may we know the perfect love that casts out all fear. Go in God's grace. Amen.